In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the 15th Sunday after Trinity, and we are in Luke chapter 16, uh, still in the Pharisee's house at the Sabbath dinner, and continuing with this series of parables that Jesus teaches, beginning with the three banqueting parables about about humility and uh, our needing to be uh, lowly and to be glad for what's given to us. Then the three parables of the lost, the coin, the sheep, and finally the prodigal or the lost son uh, that teach us that hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that uh, clear focus of purity of heart towards the good things of God. Now we come to this parable that is a kind of a capstone parable. And uh, this parable is very different in many ways uh, from other parables that Jesus teaches. And it's so dynamic that uh, we could really spend weeks and weeks talking about this parable, couldn't we? We could really uh, spend a long time. And so certainly nothing that I'm going to say today is going to be definitive about this uh, parable because it's so uh, so rich and so deep. It's continuing with this uh, theme of how it is that we're supposed to be in relationship with the kingdom of heaven. And the the parable starts out in a very unusual way, which is to name Lazarus. Uh, You'll remember that he doesn't name the father in the prodigal son story. He doesn't name the prodigal. He doesn't name any of the other lost. He doesn't name the the manager of the house or uh, the steward. He doesn't name anybody here but Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus is a a real exception uh, because of his humility and because of uh, the quality of his character. He gets this this honored place among these parables. He really stands out because of this name that is given to him. And when we're given a name by the Lord and uh, when we're honored in that fashion, that identity is really preserved. And so Lazarus' identity, his life, is preserved. Uh, So much so that we read that he's carried by angels to the bosom of Abraham. And and then again we get Abraham being named, which again is a really strange thing for the parables of Jesus, uh, that we don't get these kinds of proper names in the parable. It's a a certain man in a certain place usually. Uh, But here we get this name for uh, Abraham and for the bosom of Abraham, which is unique in that Abraham gets named, but it's also unique in that uh, this seems to be another way of describing heaven for our Lord. Isn't that an interesting way to describe heaven, the bosom of Abraham, uh, the side of Abraham? Whenever I I think of that uh, phrase bosom, you know, uh, I think of Uh, the gospel uh, of John where the apostle John is reclining in Jesus's bosom you know the bosom is basically the hip to the shoulder it's this what we would call the torso area and when they would recline at table in the ancient world they wouldn't sit on chairs they would sit on pillows or cushions at a very low table and you'd be kind of leaning on your arm you know the way my grandfather used to watch television you know on his big pillow on the floor of his house right kind of lean up on that on that pillow on the floor and so then they would uh, be staggered around the table. So, uh, you know, one person would be here on their shoulder and the next person's, uh, you know, head would be in the other person's chest or in their bosom. So it's this intimacy, uh, this familiarity, this closeness of reclining. And so that's how we're picturing Abraham, right? He's uh, on his pillow, he's reclining at table, he's feeding at this feast, and Lazarus gets this prime position, 
You know, he gets this wonderful immediate place with Abraham. And why Abraham? Why of all of the patriarchs does Abraham get picked? Why not King David, right? The, uh, the forefather of our Lord, or why not uh, Noah? Uh, why is it that it's Abraham? Abraham, of course, is the father of faith, isn't he? He's the father of faith. And so what's being reminded here is that faith and faithfulness is that uh, way of living in the kingdom of heaven. This is how we're to live in the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean, faithfulness? We read about this in Hebrews, didn't we? Uh, we read about that obedience through faith. Obedience through faith. So we perceive the will of God, we perceive the direction that he's sending us, and then we're obedient and following that that place that the Lord sends us. And of course, we have no greater example than Abraham because the Lord tells us, tells him to go away from his family, to leave his home and to go to the promised land. And he's obedient. Uh, Time and again, he follows the directions of the Lord. And that obedience, that faithfulness requires the kind of humility that we've seen in this previous parables. It requires, obedience requires this, this humble reliance upon the Lord and this clear pursuit and understanding of his ways. So when we see the bosom of Abraham is another way of talking about heaven, we see that this faith and obedience is the way that we live in the kingdom of heaven. Lazarus is there because uh, it seems of what it is that he desired. What he desired. Isn't it fascinating what Lazarus desired? Again, it's remarkable in this parable. What is it that he desired? Now, if it was me, right? If it was the gospel according to Howard, I would be desiring the rich man, right? And what the rich man had, his table, his house, his stuff. That's not what Lazarus desires at all. What is it that Lazarus desires? It says that he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. That was his desire. He didn't want to be the rich man. He didn't covet him or his stuff. He only wanted the crumbs. Does this remind you of anybody? The Canaanite woman who comes to the Lord and asks that her daughter be healed, who's possessed of the demon, and the Lord says, I came for the children, not for the dogs, insults her. And she says, but even the dogs get the crumbs at the master's table. And he says, greater faith have I not seen in Israel. Right? The same thing he says about the centurion. And so that desiring of just enough having our hearts set on just what it is that we need to do what we've been given to do is the hallmark of who Lazarus is. And because he has that humility and because he's not striving and searching for the things of this world, he's carried on angels' wings while the rich man is not named and the rich man is buried. We don't see anything about Lazarus being buried. He's carried by angels. The rich man, buried. And then he sees, he's able to see, which we could spend weeks and weeks talking about, what does this say about the afterlife, right? Because we have this conversation between Abraham and Lazarus and the rich man. They are aware of what's going on. They uh, have concern for those who are still alive. They're able to converse. It tells us a lot about the cloud of witnesses and about what it means to have life after death, this awareness of what's going on and this desire for the salvation of those that are left. And that shows us also about the heart of the rich man because he wants to continue to use Lazarus as his lackey, right? Send Lazarus to bring me some water.
He still doesn't get it. He still doesn't understand who he is and where he is. He still thinks that he's in a position of privilege and that that was owed him. And you can see uh, by that sense of entitlement that the rich man has, that he has no understanding or humility in his relationship to God. That entitlement keeps him from being able to be humble and to repent. And he still sees Lazarus as somebody who should serve him. And Abraham says, that's not going to happen. There's a great chasm fixed between you and I, basically to keep you away from us, to keep that, that sin, to keep that, uh, that, that filth of pride and arrogance away from those who are residing in the kingdom of heaven. And then amazingly, the rich man has some compassion on his, on his brothers, and he asks then that Lazarus go to his brothers. And Abraham stops short at that as well and says, he has Moses and the prophets. That's an interesting place to turn, isn't it? Moses and the prophets. What does he mean, first of all, by Moses? What he's talking about primarily there is Genesis and the Genesis story and the description of the creation of mankind and what God's plan for mankind is. And we see that in Moses' book of Genesis where he describes God's desire to dwell with mankind in the garden. That's God's desire is to dwell with us, to be with us. And the prophets outline that and they show it over and over again. And you would think that anybody who had read Amos wouldn't be surprised by the parable of the rich man. But here Amos, one of the most ancient prophets, writing around 800 BC. So one of the older prophets that we have is uh, writing at this time when uh, the kingdoms had divided. You'll remember that uh, after Solomon, the the undivided kingdoms, uh, his son uh, Rehoboam says, I'm going to continue to keep the people in slavery. And Jeroboam, who's from the tribe of Ephraim, these northern kingdoms, uh, create civil war and they separate. So you've got that southern tribe or that southern kingdom of Judah and you have that northern kingdom of Israel. And the, the main tribes are Joseph's tribes. It's important that we recognize this. It's Joseph's tribes that are those big tribes in the northern kingdom. Uh, you'll remember that those tribes get named after Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, right? You'll remember that. They get called the half-tribes. So Ephraim and Manasseh are these really big tribes, and they really take up the the large majority. And Jeroboam, the one that leads this civil war, is from the tribe of Ephraim, which means he's from the tribe of Joseph. So we need to know all that when we turn to Amos. So he's right in the middle of of this civil war, and he's warning that northern kingdom of Israel against their fallenness because they're not going to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. They're not going to the temple. And what is it that Amos warns them about? He warns them about uh, two basic things, I think, two basic things that we need to, to talk about in relationship to, uh, to Lazarus and the rich man. The first one is he says, woe to those who are at ease, right? Read rich man, right? Woe to those who are at ease. So if you've got everything that you need, be in trouble, right? If you've got everything then you don't have that hungering and thirsting for God and for his righteousness. If you have everything, you're not going to be sorrowing. If you've got everything, there's no reason to repent, to humble yourself, to lower yourself to God. So if you've got everything you need, everything's fine, I've got all that I need. Amos is saying, beware. Beware of that. And then the second quality, and I'm going to skip over all that stuff about idle music and lotions and perfumes and all that, because we live in Vegas, right? 
I mean, what does Amos know about that? Right? Huh? We read about that and we think, he hasn't even been to the forum shops, right? That's what it's all about, right? People searching, desiring after all that rich stuff. Let me adorn myself and my house with all these wonderful perfumes and lotions and, and to spend all this time on my body, on myself, right? And to find all these things to entertain me, right? This is uh, the sickness of our society uh, without question. But he says, he says, again, woe to those who are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So if we don't understand that Joseph, by Joseph, he's talking about that northern kingdom of Israel and their rebellion, uh, then we won't understand what it is that he's calling them to. He's calling them to repent and to come back to the worship of the one true God in Jerusalem at the temple. Uh, And of course, Jesus is that temple. He says, uh, tear down this temple and in three days I will build it up. He is the place of the worship of God. But he says, for those that don't sorrow... Because the real response, that grieving over Joseph, is what we read again in the Beatitudes and what we read in those parables of the banqueting parables in chapter 14 of Luke's Gospel about grieving over uh, the lack of righteousness, grieving over the lack of justice, grieving over the sins of the people, grieving over our sins. We're supposed to be in this constant state of grieving over sin for our sins and for other sins, which is what allows us to keep this humility and to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, to be always on our knees, sorrowing over ourselves and looking towards God. That's the quality that's required uh, in Amos here to keep us with that right focus to God and his ways. And of course, Timothy, uh, St. Paul in his letter to Timothy, picks up on all these same themes. Right before we read here in in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, right before this passage, uh, St. Paul has that wonderful uh, warning about the love of money. And some people uh, just remember part of that quote and say money is the root of all evil. No, St. Paul says the love of money is the root of all evil, right? And so it's when money uh, takes uh, the wrong place in our lives. Uh, Money is like a brick, right? Uh, Bricks uh, can be used for good. We can build hospitals with them, or we can throw them through windows, right? A brick is just a brick. It's how you use it that counts, right? And that your relationship to that brick, right? What do I see when I see that brick? Do I see an opportunity to build something or to care for somebody else? Or is it something I need to hoard and keep for myself? Or is it something I'm going to use as a weapon. And so uh, people see money in lots of different ways, right? It's safety for me. It's a weapon for me. It's going to keep me away from other people or give me some space or some safety, right? Or is it a tool to be used in the service of others? And so this is what St. Paul is warning about. He's saying, uh, don't love money. Have a right relationship with it. See it as a tool but he says to, to pursue righteousness, right? That's the, the attitude of the heart, to pursue righteousness. Pursuit is a great word, isn't it? That attitude of pursuit. I pursued Aaron, right? When we were in seminary and I met her, I pursued her. What does that mean that I pursued her? It means I knew what classes she had. I knew what her schedule was. 
I knew where she was going to be for lunch. I knew what it was that she was uh, interested in, right? So I knew, uh, you know, where she was at, and I knew where I could I could find her, and I was looking for ways that I could help, right? Is there a time when I could meet her? Is there something that she's trying to do that I could help with? So I made myself very useful, right, to her and pursuing her. This is the kind of attitude that we're supposed to have towards God, right? We're supposed to have that same kind of all focus, right? What is it that the Lord is doing? What are the opportunities that he's presenting to me for righteousness? What's, what's he doing today? What, what, are the, what are the righteous things? What are the things of justice that are going on in my life? You know, how is my schedule going to change? How can I forget the things that don't really matter so that I can take these opportunities to do good works, right? That's the attitude that we're supposed to have. And sometimes we fall into that, well, whatever happens to me or whatever happens today. And we don't have that sense of urgency and that sense of planning and that that hunger looking at our lives and our days to see what are the opportunities for doing the right things uh, for God today. That's the, the pursuing that we need to have and pursuing for those godly things of faithfulness, right? Then he gives this warning about the rich, right? And he doesn't say rich people are bad people. He doesn't say don't be rich. He says the rich are supposed to use their wealth in the service of others, right? They're supposed to use it for good things. In other words, to have that right relationship with money and with mankind. And this is the the truth that we see in Amos and all through the scriptures. Nothing new here in St. Paul. This is something that we see throughout the scriptures. And this is Abraham's point. Abraham's point is, in the parable, your brothers know. If they heard the prophets, they know how they're supposed to be living. And the problem is, if they don't recognize that, the resurrection of the dead will mean nothing to them. Sometimes we look at those miracles in the scriptures and we say, oh, if only I could have seen a miracle like that, or if only a miracle like that would happen in my life, if only some great miraculous thing would happen. Oh boy, if I saw that burning bush, or if the Lord spoke to me through a donkey, or if, you know, if I was there and Jesus rose from the dead, I would X, Y, Z. No. Thousands of people were fed by Jesus on the mountainside, and then they just walked away. Right? It appears to many, they not all repented. He does all those miracles in the face of the Pharisees, and what's their response to those miracles? We've got to kill him. Because they hadn't started out with that right response to Moses and the prophets. Their hearts hadn't been softened. They hadn't realized their own sorrowing. They hadn't grieved for their sins and the sins of others. So when Jesus does rise from the dead, they're thinking, how can we stop this? How can we stop the kingdom of God? How can we fight against it? So any miracle that's going to have any impact on our life, anything that the Lord is going to do to radically change us, has to happen to a heart that's been softened already. A heart that's been turned already by the message of the prophets. A heart that is already grieved. A heart that is already sorrowing over the lack of righteousness and justice in our world. A heart that's already broken over the the suffering of the sick and of the needy. A heart that looks on Lazarus with compassion. And when we're able to have that compassion, and we too limit our desires to the crumbs of the rich man, we're ready for the miraculous in our lives and for a change to our hearts 
that will not only change us, but our lives and those lives of the people around us and even of our world. Because we become instruments of God's grace. May we pursue righteousness and His grace this day and forevermore.